0: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You heard her, go subscribe.
0: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
1: So, Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Kathy Lynn Kerr. Kathy was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. She attended Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where she swam for the Mustangs and received her BBA in finance with minors in Art History and Economics. Although her career has spanned the gamut from commercial banking lender to advertising account executive, from calligrapher artist to tennis official, she has found her true delight in putting pen to paper. She joins me today to discuss her memoir, Accidental Sisters, the story of my 52-year wait to meet my biological sibling. Welcome to Unquirking Story, Catherine.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mike, very much for having me.
1: Well, I'm very excited to dig into your history and background, Um, but I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody as we begin, which is, um, Kathy, where
2: does your story begin? Well, um, I was adopted at birth and um, had never sought to find out anything about my birth parents or any biological relatives, um I always said I won the adoption lottery maybe that had something to do with it and one night 10 years ago in 2012 I was it was late at night everybody else was in bed and I was sitting in front of my computer thinking I've got daughters who are approaching adulthood now they were uh we have three daughters and they were about to be 18 just turned 21 and, and and the oldest 24. War. And I decided that out of nowhere, <laughs> I just decided I needed to do a social medical search. Uh, I knew that I'd been adopted um, from Catholic charities in Des Moines, Iowa, which is where I was born and raised. And um, the next morning, I well, I looked I looked up the phone number and was kind of shocked that it was so close to my house in Des Moines, where I had lived for many years. Why? Why had I never even looked that up? And um, anyway, I contacted them the next day. Talked to a social worker who explained the difference between um, social medical, which um, well, you you have adoption in your family, so you know there's that's a pretty non-identifying sort of search as opposed to when you're looking for a birth father, birth mother. So I wasn't looking for names or anything about them. I was just looking for whatever medical history I could get for my daughters. So um, I paid my fee, answered some questions. Um, She said, "I, "I will." send you a packet, you'll probably get it in about a week. Five days later, I get on the mailbox and there's an envelope there and it is um, not what I was expecting it to be. I just thought it'd be a regular little envelope. It was a little bit thicker than I thought it would be. That kind of surprised me. So I went back up to the house, pulled pulled the contents out and there were things in there I didn't expect to find, which was which was a nice surprise. There were um, like Old-fashioned typewriter autobiographies that both my parents had written, uh, sort of to apply for um, uh, a, as adoptive parents. wasn't expecting that. Um, there was there was a good amount of social medical, but really not as much as I'd hoped there would be medical for the girls. Um, and there were also two handwritten letters from my birth mother, which is a pretty weird feeling when you're 52 years old to see your birth mother's handwriting for the first yeah. one, which was also a lot like my handwriting. So that was kind of interesting also. But, uh, so I was looking through the information, um, was happy to see there was some medical, but not much. And then I got to the letters that my birth mother had written. And now remember, this is all non-identifying information. Like the most you get is, um, your birth mother's name is Margaret. Your birth father's name is Robert. Um, the state that they came from, just very non-identifying. So I start reading through these letters and I'm amazed at her handwriting and that I'm actually looking at my birth mother's handwriting. And I get to the end of the first letter and the social worker has forgotten to white out her last name. So everything changed on a dime right then. It was, I, I had no idea, that I felt the way I did. I I suddenly had my birth mother's full name, her maiden name. I dropped everything I was doing. I started um, getting online and uh, looking for any archived weddings, um, uh, obituaries, anything where I could find her family. And um, it really surprised me. I I did not expect to have that reaction whatsoever. I, I just, I didn't think that that was I didn't think that was an alley that I had any interest in going down, but then you never know until you see something and, and how things can change. So yeah, uh,
1: when you were uh, like young, did was it a secret that you were adopted or did your parents always oh, tell no. you
2: that you were adopted? Okay. So you, no, no, no. They, they told me, they told me from, probably a young enough age where i didn't even understand no they always wanted to make sure that i knew i was adopted and that my brother knew that he was adopted my brother was the only sibling that i grew up with and he was um four years younger than me um so no they were always very good about that in fact there's a little quip in the book about my next-door neighborhood i hung out with all the time who um called after years of him knowing I was adopted, I was six years old and he was about five and a half and he called me an orphan. And um, I was really upset. I was outside playing with him. I ran inside, told my dad that Fred had called me an orphan. And my dad <laughs> my dad was so cool. He, he um, walked me into the den, pulled out the big old uh, Webster's dictionary and made me look up orphan. And, and we read it together. And he said, hmm, this is um, hardly your problem. You." A, a, an orphan is someone who doesn't have any parents. He said technically, you've got and he starts counting on his fingers birth mother, birth, father, your mom, me, you've got four parents all he Fred's only got two. go tell him he's only got two parents. so yeah, i I always knew, I always knew yeah. and and usually it was a pretty positive um, social experience, except every once in a while you had a friend that would call you an orphan. Yeah.
1: what so so you find your um you find out your mother's full name um you do you go i always call it going to our lady of google but um what like what happens next do you do you track her down do you what do you what do you learn about your your birth mother
2: well it's it's um it's it's much more difficult to track down a birth mother in many cases Than it is a birth father the most obvious reason being that sometimes their name changes you know not everybody changes their name when they get married um but that was a fairly common practice um back in uh, the early 1960s i was born at the end of 1959 and um so i felt like i was a pretty good sleuth i'd go down one road and i think i was getting somewhere and then i'd run into a dead end and i'd back up and i'd go down another road and and i just Kept working at it and um, finally got pretty frustrated. Um, and it just happened to be right before Mother's Day of 2012. And my daughters asked me, "Hey, what would you think about us um, getting you a birth mother search for Mother's Day?" And I just broke down to tears. I was like, "That is the sweetest thing. I'm stuck. You're right. Uh, how how thoughtful of you to give me that as a gift." And that's what they did. And next thing I knew, um, my oldest daughter, Lauren, was um calling the agency and um asking if you know if we could do a birth mother search. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the next step, and um, that went on for about two or three weeks. And and by the way, I had a new social worker, it was very interesting. So, this the the one who sent me the packet during the five days between when she mailed when we talked on the phone and when i received the packet that person was no longer employed at catholic charities
1: i mean i can imagine you know her um forgetting to white out or redact certain information in in the stuff that she sent i mean could that have led to her being i mean doing that you know a number of times maybe led her to to leaving that agency
2: or all all i knew is that kim lobby who was was my new um my new social worker uh when i called back you know the, the day after the day that i got the letter um said that that person was very competent she was really surprised that it happened um uh well, a very interesting thing happened just a couple of days ago, and I'll get, <laughs> get into that later because it's such good timing to be able to talk to you about this. Um, but she, she just she had gone to, to work somewhere else. And Kim was really not sure if uh, she was actually let go because of it or if there was not a meeting of the minds uh, between uh, those who ran Catholic charities and, and this woman that had originally had my file, it was, it was kind of foggy and mm-hmm. it really hurt. I mean, obviously that's a, that's a pretty egregious error. Um, but I do really believe that, uh, um, she, she was just because I've I heard how competent she is. I th- I think she was just God's pen. I, yeah. I, I just, it, it could have been some too, divine intervention there or something. It was just too odd that this happened with this person, with this personality who had this reputation. I just, um, I, I trusted anything that Kim told me and i worked with her uh, for years afterwards. Um, even when she wasn't at Catholic Charities anymore, she still helped me with my case. So if, if she says this person is competent, I believe it. I think there was more at play there, quite mm-hmm. honestly.
1: Well, so so tell me, um, kind of what happens next and, and when at what point in time do you learn about a biological sister
2: so what happened next is that kim lobby is now in charge of the search and she's you know she's doing the birth mother search and um i had uh, it was about three weeks after that started i had gone to lunch with lauren the oldest one the one who had called for um to to set up the birth mother search. I was getting in my car and I saw, I looked down at my phone, it was, it was ringing and it was Kim Lobby. And so I was like, well, here we go. It's something she's, she's not just calling to make small talk. She's got some news. Yeah. So, um, she told me she had good news and bad news. And she said, what do you want to hear first? So I hear the bad news, she said, your birth mother passed nine and a half years ago. And, um, she said, but um, I was able to track down her um, sister's house because um, my birth mother was from a small town in Illinois, Clinton, Illinois, and um, she'd gone off to Des Moines to have me. So she's, small town Illinois, it was her base where she was born and raised. So her, her youngest sister had married early. So all of a sudden, Kim had a last name of some female connected to my birth mother. And um, she lived in the same house with the same landline for decades. So uh, what happened was Kim Kim called that number and here's a little bit more divine intervention. Um, that aunt was no, also no longer living. Uh, but of course, Kim didn't know that when she called. She calls this landline hoping to talk to somebody who can tell her um, how to find my birth mother. And um, so the only person living there is, is her husband. Um, The aunt is no longer living. At that moment, when Kim calls that house, uh, in walks Jill, who's the only daughter of the aunt, the deceased aunt, and the still living uncle. And she picks up the phone that her dad never picks up. So hardly anybody knew about this pregnancy. My my birth mother ran off um, as quickly as she could and, and told her two sisters. So one of those sisters is, is the deceased aunt at that house. And that aunt, who's very close to Jill, who answered the phone, had told Jill many years ago. But hardly anyone knew. Like Dwayne, the, the uncle who was living in the house, had no idea. He had never heard about me, never knew that Margaret had had, had this baby. So... Um, Jill answers the phone, and Kim introduced herself, says she's from Catholic Charities, and Jill says, well, Catholic Charities in Des Moines, and she said, there is only one reason you would be calling from Catholic Charities in Des Moines. My aunt gave up a baby in the end of 1959. It was a baby girl. Is that why you're calling? And Kim was speechless. I mean, she just, she'd just she been doing this for decades. She'd never had anything like that happen before, where somebody who wasn't directly part of the the adoption triad uh knew exactly what was going on before she even had a chance to explain why she was calling so that led to finding my sister so Jill who who's now my cousin was her cousin and had just talked to my sister on the phone the day before and and uh, they were texting back and forth the day before they hadn't talked for a while previous to that and um you know, there's a, I don't know if you all went through this at all in your family, with with adoption and, and the actual discovery and when you meet, um, but there's protocol and we had to, we had to um, sign some papers and set a date and um, then we, then we were able to talk for the first time.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in our situation, so my older brother, uh, Greg is adopted Um, my parents had a hard time conceiving, you know, at one point they did, (laughs) then they had three kids. Um, but, um,
2: I love those stories.
1: Yeah. He, and he, he always knew he was adopted. Um, one day he is in, he owns a, uh, a liquor store in Connecticut. He's working in the store. A young woman walks in and he gets a really strange feeling like it is in the air He goes into the back room because he's feeling off. And that woman um, goes up to his, you know, the manager and says, we're looking for Greg. And they say, well, Greg's here, but he's in the back room. They get Greg. It's his biological sister. Oh, my gosh. And he had no idea that she even existed. He never he never sought out his birth parents because just like you said, he felt like he won The lottery with with you know his adoptive parents my parents our parents i should say and um he but he did you know he was experiencing some medical issues many many years ago so he did want to get some information about you know his family of origin but that was it he never sought out his his birth parents his birth mother anything like that they found him they hired his mother hired um his his birth mother hired a private investigator to track him down. So they had a file with my information in there because I did a lot of writing for our local newspaper. So they had a whole stack of information about me um, and, and the rest of the family. But um, that's how he found out. And it was actually not something he ever wanted. And it's not something he actually talks about a lot now um mm. you know wh- whether or not he maintains a relationship with his sisters i know that they correspond but i wouldn't say that there's a relationship there so it did it did happen a little bit differently
2: yeah and i i would think um that would be extremely startling to have that individual just show up yeah um without i i think i think it would have been uh easier on greg uh had he had the opportunity to say, yes, I'd like to meet you in person or no, I, I need to think about this for a month and then I'll, I'll call you back. Yeah. I mean, that's just showing up is, is a uh, risky. <laughs> yeah. And I remember him,
1: him sitting me down and telling me this, he and I are actually quite close, um, even though there's a nine year difference between us, but um, he went to take me out to dinner one night, which was kind of out of the ordinary, you know? Yeah. And um, he's like, hey, there's something we need to talk about. I'm like, Oh shit. I'm like, what's the matter? <laughs> Who's sick? Um, oh. and then he proceeds to tell me the story. And I was just like blown away. I'm like, I need another cocktail. I'm like, we just yeah. um, but it's it's amazing. But what I always what always stayed with me was his feeling that something was amiss once this person walked into the room. Like there was like an energy, a feeling, um, something I don't want to say supernatural, but it was definitely something that wasn't an everyday occurrence, you know right Um, so which which makes me really interested in you know the moment you you met your your sister for the first time if we could build into that like I'd love to know just paint a picture for me of what that experience was like
2: (laughs) well it wasn't your typical first of all remember this had nothing to do with DNA testing this was all just divine intervention I don't know what else to call it so uh but so I so we we get to this this time and have this phone call and we're both really excited she's Kim had said well y'all this is a big deal so pick some time next week set it aside make sure nobody's there it's going to be very emotional when do you all want to do this and we both answered her of course separately in five minutes please yeah so so it was something we were both very anxious to do so when we actually were talking on the phone Mike um I was just I remember being so surreal. Here I am, 52 years old, and I'm introducing myself to my sister. And that was just, I remember that just stayed with me for a long time after that. So I'm I'm fumbling over my words, and I'm trying not to cry, and, I, and I'm telling her who I am and, and where I live. And she just stops. She's real patient. She just stops, waits for me to stop talking. And she goes, Kathy, I have known about you for 24 years.
1: No shit. Sure. Yeah. Pardon me, but oh, my God.
2: <laughs> so, of course, you know, Mike, I wasn't expecting that at all it, in, the, in the least bit. And um, my my birth mother had told her Marjorie was going through a really tough time and a divorce. And she had a newborn and a one-year-old, so a son that was one, 13 months old and a newborn and here she was going through a divorce living with her parents and my my birth mother could just tell she was just that marcia was really struggling and she she walked in the room and she said you know you're gonna make it through this and let me tell you why you're gonna make make it through this i'll tell you what i made it through and had never said anything to her you know till then and of course she was at that point she was marcia was 24 years old when she told her
1: okay yeah so did your did your birth mother marry
2: your birth father no no um so marcia is my half sister okay and um i thought this was very interesting too that this was information that came from the aunt that passed rita so rita's house was the one where jill picked up the phone um rita had told well a couple actually a couple people had had told Um, Marcia, that my birth mother had my birth father had actually asked her to marry him. But what happened was she told him she was pregnant and it wasn't a very good reaction. And then a couple months went by. And in the meantime, she's She's trying to figure out like where can I go to have this baby? I needed a leave. T- she Never told her parents. So so my birth grandparents both died, having no idea that I even existed.
1: Oh my god! So where?
2: But where do they think she was? Um, she took a job. She so she was a nurse, and uh, in Champaign, Illinois, and she took a job uh with Mercy Hospital in Des Moines. She was with Mercy in uh, Champaign, and so she uh, had asked. Um, the person that she worked for, if she would help her just uh, under the guise of, you know what? I've always lived in a small town. I want to go to the big city of Des Moines, no quarter, a million people. And um, so she helped her uh, get some interviews and, and that's how she ended up going there just in time. I mean, she was, she's tall like me. I'm six feet tall and she's five ten, So we can, hide a baby for a little bit longer than most people might be able to. And um, she, uh, let's see, May. so she was, she was about five and a half months pregnant when she left town and went to Des Moines. And it was, it was um, originally to stay with one of her best friends from uh, nursing school who she also worked with in Champaign, stay with her, her, um, that friend's parents. So that's, that's what the Des Moines connection was all about.
1: Got it. And was she just afraid to tell you know, her parents was afraid of the reaction. Was there a lot of shame yeah. there? I mean, I'm thinking yeah. of the time period.
2: And yes, you know, yes, the time period is, you know, and I, 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 it was really important to me when I wrote this book to do a lot of research about historical context. And um, yes, it, w- it was a very, very different time, but it was also an unusual, a pregnant, unwed mother to say, no, you know, hey, no, no, you took too long to ask me. I'm, I'm not. I'm not on board with this I, I don't have a good feeling about this i mean it would have been a lot easier just to take the security and run in 1959 right yeah and um anyway so um she she didn't tell her parents and i and i asked Marsha about this a couple times because i wanted to talk about it in the book she didn't tell her parents we thought that was really odd because they're a really close-knit family they always were um uh, but but I maybe somewhat the Catholic influence, uh, had something to do with it. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure, but Marsha's take on. It was if Margaret had it to do all over again, she would have told them she just got caught up in it and felt like it was the easiest way out. And she, she had already set up this plan to go to Des Moines and take this job and, um, Uh, it's pretty amazing her parents never found out but but marcia really did feel like just knowing both her her mother and um her grandparents so my birth grandparents um that they would have it it would have been a fine it would have been fine they they would have uh been there to support her uh love her like they always did and and i think she just freaked out and made a decision and then stuck with it probably felt it was too late at some you know some point
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard to explain it you know well well after the fact um right and she 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 buried it i'm just wondering and of course there's probably no way of knowing um like what that did to her long term you know it
2: couldn't it it could not have been been easy you know And, and i um being part of the adoption triad I'd, I'd have people come to me all the time who are birth mothers or adoptees or, or whatever and they they want to talk about it and the long-term psychological damage has just got to be um not got to be It it is just brutal it's it I I, I feel so bad for these young women that they um society told them what to do yeah they, di- they didn't get to make that choice themselves and um and she she somewhat got to make her choice uh in in, in just not telling and and going on and doing this on her doing this on her own with, with help from a few people that she trusted but but uh i mean and and also it wasn't just um it wasn't just her parents so my birth grandparents that didn't know she never mike she never told her own husband wow so marcia knew but her dad did not know her dad died not knowing so that that those two that blows my mind
1: yeah yeah i interviewed um somebody last year who had given up a a child for adoption Um, about a memoir that she wrote and through genetic testing, they wound up, you know, meeting. And then he subsequently died of suicide. Um, a tragic, I mean, it's a beautiful story and a tragic story, but you know, from what she told, tells me every year on his birthday, um, she always remembered, you know, always did something in remembrance of him. And I can only imagine, um, your mom and, and sort of hiding it and burying it and sort of living with that weight. Um, you know, that's like the empath in me really wants to feel feel something for her right now.
2: Yes. Yeah. I, I, I know. And, and I know what author you're talking about and I've read, read her book. We have the same publicist and, okay, um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I, I Going, going through that and reading, reading her book, it just made me, of course, it made me think of my birth mother and, and, um, and what she went through and, and, you know, the things that she told people about, um, um, that it was not something you can forget, you live with it all your life. And um, uh, yes, the, the emotional toll is, it's just, I can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah yeah and then I think, and then I think here I am, you know, telling everybody I wanted to lottery and uh, living living this great life, um, which you know the main reason that I wanted to actually be able to um, speak with my birth mother, you know, presuming she was still alive, which she was not. Uh, Was to tell her thank you that that I felt like she did the right thing. I I had a wonderful upbringing. I was extremely close to both my parents and my grandparents and um, my brother and my cousins and and it just was um, it it was not something that I ever took for granted. I mean, I I, it wasn't that I always thought about the fact, hey, I'm adopted. Wow, aren't I lucky? But but when I did think about the fact that I was adopted, um, I I was always just Full of immense uh, and still am uh, immense gratitude uh, for my situation because not all situations are that wonderful. Yeah. Well, heck, they're not even that wonderful in biological family. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's... isn't that the truth? <laughs> so, um... I know, I know how lucky I am. I well, how do
1: you happy. feel as if you've changed having gone through this journey and meeting, um, you know, meeting your sister? Um, how has it impacted your life? well um
2: it's it's a wonderful feeling because uh, you know the alternative would have been for me to never meet her and not and and not have any not not have this wonderful relationship with with a biological sibling and um all the kind of fun things that come with that that are by the way much more interesting to adopted people than other people like for example you know just um um the way we hold our finger when we're eating something or the, the way we both throw our right leg out over the cover when we're sleeping you know just little things like that that they might just be coincidence but i doubt it you know so um uh those all those little things are so fascinating to me but but also just actually um having having my sister around and and being able to spend this time together. And people say, well, you know, it's isn't that sad that you didn't meet her till you're 52 years old. No, it's not sad at all. It's it's, you know, we've already got 10 years under our belt and we're having a great time. And and um she was she was with us on our family vacation uh when the book released uh, a few weeks ago and <laughs> um it was pretty cool you know here here we had met we released the book on the 10 year anniversary when we laid eyes on each other in person Wow. which just kind of happened. It just was, as the editing process was going along, I said, you know, what, what day is good for you? And I'm, oh my goodness, this is going to be the 10 year anniversary. So there she was, you know, with me at the beach and, um, I, you know, in, in her, her children have cousins, they never had cousins, you know, so it's, it's, um, I could go on and on about the family part of it. It's, it's, um, I'm very blessed.
1: Yeah. You know what? Sounds like it. Yeah. Um. So why, why put it all in a book? Um. I mean, I know, I know the effort required in writing uh, fiction yeah. anyway, not certainly not nonfiction yet, but um. you know, it is, Uh. it is a, it's, it's a long process. It's arduous. Uh. But for you, it's an emotional, I'm sure it's an emotional process too. Right. So what, yeah. what why, why put it in a book? And then sort of, what did you learn about yourself while writing it?
2: Well, um, I definitely learned how much I I love to write, not just not just journaling and and the stuff that I like to do before. I've I've really I really enjoyed the process. And you're a writer, writer. So, you know, that um, when you're writing something, you go along and you're like you're having a great day and and you think, wow, I'm just I'm nailing it. This feels great. And then you have a really crummy day. And you just, like, just throw the book away, throw it away, let it go. Bye-bye. And then, and then you have another good day, you know? So it's, I mean, all of that's a process and it took, it took me three years of writing. Um, the I, I would say the catalyst for, catalysts for writing the book were just enough people said, I, I, I can't believe you're not going to put this in a book. You just, this, the things that happen throughout the book, um, the, the serendipity involved um, is just, you really you really can't believe it when you put it all together. And um, so, yes, it was a lot of work, We you know that it's it, a lot of work to write any book, fiction or nonfiction. And um, as I said, it took me three years, and then another year after I handed the manuscript in, and I distinctly remember handing the manuscript to my rep. And going, well, 95%. <laughs> and she just had laughing. I said, Oh, and, okay. And then you learn and what this is my first book. <laughs> this is my first book. And and then I got uh, I called I call my um content editor my Sherpa. <laughs> so she's she's so awesome. And she handed me back the first round of the content edit. I thought I was gonna faint.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not uncommon.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and if i'd read i you know i'd I'd heard i'd read i you know i have friends who are authors i so i i knew it was coming i just um it was pretty naive of me to think that i was that close to the finish line um you know i had another 11 months of uh work to do after that but it's it's all been i've really i've really enjoyed it now i can't now i can't wait to i'm starting a novel and i can't wait to write things that aren't true <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I find, I mean, just writing fiction is um, yeah, I mean, we make up the stories, but there's always some element of truth in there. There's there's always a little bit of um us that we put in those pages somehow. Um it's my, my experience anyway. So yes. um, you might find that as well.
2: I think that's I think that's a pretty pretty common experience. And and um, you know, the even the protagonist probably has a little bit of you. Uh, in there somewhere um it's uh anyway I'm or the antagonist
1: to... depending on <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like to be the bad guy no i'm kidding um well i you know i always like to say um you know i'd like to, to get to know my authors a bit of course through their stories but also through a series of questions i always ask at this point during our interview so i'm curious kathy uh when you were growing up what were some of your favorite tv shows
2: Ooh, um, I loved Gilligan's Island.
1: Who did you identify? Is there one character you identified more with on the island than the others?
2: So do you want me to say Ginger or Marianne?
1: I, it doesn't matter. It, it could have been the <laughs> professor didn't... for all I know. You seem like a smart person, but
2: I would say honestly the professor. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I loved I loved the professor. I had a feeling
1: know... you were gonna say the professor, but yeah. tell me why.
2: Yeah. He just was he was just a uh he was a academic nerd. Like I am, he, he just, um, I guess, I guess I could, um, like I loved, I loved how goofy Gilligan was, but I, um, I just, I just related more to the professor. Yeah. You know, when Gilligan's
1: Island, believe it or not, comes up quite a bit when I ask this question, really? Um, It's actually Gilligan's Island and the Brady bunch are probably tied for number one and i always ask the same follow up question who do you identify with um my problem with the professor is if he could create a radio out of coconuts why not make a boat out of some of the wood that's on the island and get off the island like <laughs> he had to have been able to do this he had he had so... a, he had a, they they had an i don't even know how they got the exercise bike they had some exercise bike hooked up to like a conveyor to get some kind of energy going but no boat no boat. That's so no boat.
2: funny that you just said that because um I, I, it always drove me crazy. I mean, like, you couldn't
1: patch up, the boat? up the
2: boat. I you know. came up with all this other stuff. Why 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 don't you have something that's going to float you right out of here? Yes, I I totally agree.
1: The other question I have about that show is every now and then, maybe once a season, like these random cannibals would show up, right? <laughs> and they would like and maybe they how do we get away. And they, then they would leave. And I'm like, why, why? Where do the cannibals go? Like, why? Why? Why aren't they? And and why not take at least one of you know one of the 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 castaways?
2: Yeah, you have a super good memory, and I and I. Most people tell me I have a really good memory, but some of your details about yeah, Gilligan's just, are are uh, superior. <laughs> yeah, <you know>, it's <laughs> one of those.
1: It was one of those shows though that, that I saw it in syndication, um, and my brother and I every summer we would drive from Connecticut to Florida with the family. And my grandmother didn't have cable TV, but she got like TBS or something on UHF. Uh-huh. Um, and Gilligan's Island is one of the shows that was always on. So it was Gilligan's Island, wow. Green Acres. Um, so we, we watched all those shows. Oh, and I great, loved Green Acres. I know, Green, Green. Green Acres. I was watching yeah. a I was watching a Columbo last night. Um, my all time favorite show. And Eddie Albert was the uh, was the bad guy. He was the um, he was the uh, antagonist. And uh, I was just waiting for, uh, who is it? Ava Gabor. It was Ava Gabor who played his wife in green acres oh, um, yes. to, uh, to come out with Wilbur the pig. But, um, I, I'm, I'm about to scare everybody <laughs> with my deep knowledge of TV. So I I'll probably stop this line of questions. I know. Um,
2: <laughs> I know, I know, but how about leave it, leave it to beaver.
1: Oh, another to one beaver. of those shows that was on in syndication that we used to watch and somebody just died. Um, was the guy that played Wally um, this year who just died Wally, Tony Dow? Tony Dow, right? Yeah. Wally, why I know Tony, Tony Dow. Why Dao. I know he played Wally, I don't. I couldn't tell you. I don't know why I know that.
2: They he, he did an interview um, that they replayed uh, right after his death, uh, maybe on um, CBS Sunday Morning. I remember seeing it recently, uh, like right after his death. but I knew I was old when I was standing around. group of people and I said you know so and so and they go yeah no no I go he's he's such an Eddie Haskell you know what I mean like he's such an Eddie and they just looked at me with blank
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely
2: (laughs) you don't know who Eddie Haskell is that's so sad
1: yeah our kids had a friend that my wife and I would call Eddie Haskell and it was not a compliment Uh, yeah (laughs) he was you know you could tell um how about musical artists who did you grow up who it generally, listening- it
2: generally isn't. And it's no.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In terms of musical artist. The snake artists. in the
2: grass who is always nice to the parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> who, um, uh, thinking about music, who did you grow up listening to? What did you like to listen to?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I, I have this station on Sirius XM that I'm really enjoying and it's, it's reminding me of, of a whole lot of songs a whole lot of groups that I I forgot how much I like them. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, gosh. What's the James station? James Taylor. James Taylor. I love James Taylor. Um, who else? Robert Plant was just here in Nashville. Everybody's here in Nashville for, you know, whatever. And um, God, I'd never get tired of his voice
1: it's 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 so powerful i mean so powerful what's the station on sirius you were referencing
2: it is called channel 26
1: oh it's classic (laughs) uh, it's either classic vinyl or classic vinyl vinyl.
2: yeah yeah yeah. it's classic.
1: yep no i that's one of my one of my presets as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah yes i
2: like that station yeah i like it a lot yeah that's good
1: um i just saw sting a few weeks ago he came through connecticut um oh wow and that was a great show i just forgot how many songs of his that i really liked
2: i know until you start listening to it and, the, and then you're like oh yeah that's one of my favorites that's one of my favorites that, and he still sounds great oh god he and he looks fan his
1: son opened up for him and i think sting looked younger than his son i mean there's something to this vegan tantra combo plate that he's got going on that oh um, yeah you know, uh that, that something's working for him, leave it at that.
2: Yeah. We saw um we saw the last concert we went to, which was really good, Elton John, and uh last year uh here in Nashville. And um, oh my goodness, he was so good. And and then he was just belting out, singing, banging away on the piano, and all of a sudden he just stops and he goes, I'm really tired. <laughs> it was so cute.
1: I um this summer I saw Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. Wow, that was I mean you talk about song after song after song um, of just hit after hit. I mean I was in tears. It was such a great experience. I, I literally started crying three times. Um, you know because it was such a such a great experience. Yeah, so that's another yeah, he's, one I just he's forgot. Do
2: you know, when I was when I was at SMU, he was yeah he he played so billy joel had a concert in our ranking ink little auditorium at smu when i was a freshman or a sophomore that's that's how quick he went from like nothing to somebody really big yeah he he was actually doing you know playing in in a small college um theaters and boom overnight he was he was a big deal
1: yeah good stuff um You know, I'm curious, having gone through the writing process for this book, uh, in what ways, if any, might you consider writing to be a form of therapy?
2: Oh, well, (laughs) I'm laughing because this book was a form of therapy. It was, it was, um, I, I found out things about myself. I had no idea were so that, that were so interesting to me. And, um, and, uh, the whole process was very cathartic. And once again, let me go back to my Sherpa, because when I would talk about certain events and lay them out on the table, she'd go, oh, no, 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 no! I, I need for you to like dig deep inside your soul and tell me a little bit more about this, like 10 pages more about this particular topic. And um, it, it pulled those feelings out. It was really it was, it was great. Yeah. It was great.
1: And then I know you already kind of referenced um, something earlier, but I'm curious uh, what lessons about oh, publishing did you learn the hard way?
2: Oh, um, I don't know. I've, I've been uh, feeling pretty fortunate that I've been going down a, a good road with, you know, it's all about the people you're working with. And um I, I took it upon myself to sit through, it was right in the middle, the beginning of COVID. Everything was going to Zoom, things that people would go out to LA or New York for, for um, writing events were were now you know in Zoom meetings. And I um, took a Zoom course on how much the publishing industry had changed. And it was 20 hours in one weekend. So maybe four hours on Friday and then all Saturday and Sunday. And I've never, ever learned so much about something I didn't know about as I did by the end of that weekend. And um, I'm glad I did it before I wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I learned a lot about, um, do you want to give up the rights to your story? Do you not want to give up the rights to your story? Um, um, I I just, it's it's really been a good experience. And yes, everything- everything I did, I learned something new because it's the first time I've written a book.
1: Yeah, I was, I was uh, thinking you might say that um, it's not nearly over when you hand in your first draft.
2: And <laughs> hey, You probably could tell I felt that way in a big way. That's <laughs> for sure. That was, yes, that was, Mike, you're right. That's my number one lesson <laughs> that I learned was that uh, that was a very naive thought to think that I was 95% done. <clears throat> but um but thank goodness I wasn't. You know, there was there was a lot to still be pulled out of me.
1: Yeah. And then if you uh if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice into uh, your younger self, what would you tell your younger self? What words of advice would you give the younger Kathy?
2: I would say don't be so sure that you know what you want until you're faced with the situation. Um, I, I think for many years I, uh, was very, um, sure, well, with the adoption situation, let's just talk about that. I was, I was very sure that, um, having my, having my mom and my dad and my brother and my grandmother and my grandfather, and and that was all, that was all I needed and, and that there wasn't really any. Anything more to my life uh, than the family that I had. um it, it also allowed me to um, rethink what family really means also. so um yeah, i I mean, i I my content editor what we went round and round about she said, well, no, surely you okay, I know you said you were going for a social medical search but surely what you really wanted was this sister or your birth mother whatever I said no I'm not kidding you I really wanted a social medical search I did not have any idea whatsoever that I felt the way that I did until I was actually faced with the situation oh and what I wanted to tell you about the person the gal that um this all just happened a couple of days ago. The gal ten years ago who forgot to white out the last name, uh, Kim Lobby, sent me a picture of her reading "Accidental Sisters" in her backyard in Des Moines. This was uh, last weekend, and she said, um, "She said um, really enjoying the book. Blah 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 blah. You know, she's 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 very present in the book. So it was really that she liked it because." I was always asking her, did I get this right? There was legislation about adoption. Did I get that right? You know, on and on. So she was just, she was just making me feel good about all that. Said I'm I'm enjoying reading the book. She said, by the way, was the was the name of the social worker that forgot to redact the information? Was her name blah blah? And I said, Yeah. And she said, Do you remember her last name? I told her her last name. She goes, Okay, it's 10 years later. We work together now. I said, No. No, you're you're not. That's not true. <laughs> There's already been so, so many serendipitous things that happened with this story. She said, "Yes, we work together now." She said, um, "Wouldn't it be cool if she found out you wrote this book and and that uh, that that you believe that she was um, God's tool in this this whole story, the catalyst to the story?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, you can go ahead and." yeah go ahead and tell her let's see what she does and then she called me that night she said you know I think it'd be better if you tell her I go, oh my gosh okay so she told this person to be ready for a phone call for me and I called her and I told her what happened and and thanked her for the mistake because it turned out to be a really really incredible wonderful story thanks to that one little thing that happened and what was her response? She was really wonderful to talk to. And um, at, fir- at first she said, I, I don't think she realized that we were talking about a social medical search. I think she thought we were talking about a birth mother search because she said, well, so why why would that matter if the last name is on there? I said, because it was a social medical search. And she goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And then she remembered because she was, she remembered my file because she was, she was happened to be born the same year as I was. And there was something else that was, that was the same. I can't, I can't think of what it was right now, but she said, I I know the file. And I remember your parents had these wonderful autobiographies that were in there. And I said, yep, that's, that's the file. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so 10 years later, I, I get a chance to actually talk to the social worker that made this whole story happen. Yeah,
1: really, really did come full circle.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I told her to make sure to look at the very last sentence in the book because in acknowledgments, the very last person I thank from the bottom of my heart is her.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, where can listeners uh, buy Accidental Sisters?
2: Oh, um, well, let me make my plug for my Nashville stores. So Landmark Booksellers, which is where I had my very first um, book signing which is in Franklin, Tennessee, Parnassus which is um actually in Nashville. And then um the usuals, Amazon, Barnes and Noble they're they're all on my website which is kalecarebooks.com.
1: Uh in addition to your website, any social media handles that you want to throw out there in case people want to follow you or get in touch?
2: Um I I I would say that I'm I'm most active on um, Instagram, and uh, that would be Skillet Fam. (laughs) Skillet Fam, yeah, and Facebook Facebook some, um, and that's uh, Catherine Care KL Care Books. Okay,
1: very good. Well, uh Kelly, thank you so much for uh, stopping by and corking a story. let me uncork your story. Um, I know we uh, we had a little back and forth getting this one, uh, but I'm glad we got it done.: Me too, Mike. Thank you
2: very, very much for having me.
1: Yeah, and all the best with uh, with this book and uh,
2: and your relationship with your sister.: Thank you. thank you. I really appreciate it.